Good evening. This is The Space Show. A very exciting thing happened just over an hour ago, and we're going to have all the details about it, and then we're going to wind back in history. But first, let's have our usual theme music by Vangelis. Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. Now, if you've been a regular listener to the Space Show, you know that we have been tracking the trials and tribulations of the Artemis One mission. That's the first launch of the Space Launch System. Well, it finally got away at about, right about 547 and yes, they had a bit of a delay. <laughs> yes, hydrogen. And we're going to have the uh, a recap of that mission in just a moment. But uh, I'm going to give you first a look forward on some of the other things we'll have on the space show. Uh, after this feature, we're going to be looking at the first launch of another big rocket. Yes, the Saturn V. The Apollo 4 happened. 55 years and one week ago. Now, what happened today? Well, the Space Launch System. First, some details about it. It's a two-stage rocket. The core stage has four RS-25 engines, each with a thrust of 2.2 meganewtons. Now, these are refurbished space shuttle engines. They burn hydrogen and oxygen, and the core stage has a diameter of 8.4 metres. It's 65 metres tall. And after the launch, it was discarded into an orbit of 1806 by uh, about 30 kilometres. Now, 30 kilometres is well inside the atmosphere, so about now it should be burning up uh, over the um, uh, Pacific Ocean. Now, the upper stage has one RL-10 engine. That's basically a Centaur engine. It has 110 kilonewton thrust, has a 5-metre diameter, and is powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. Attached to it are two solid rocket boosters. Now, these are fueled by aluminium powder as a fuel, ammonium perchlorate as an oxidizer, and they also have a, a, a binder to hold it together. And basically, these are the same sort of boosters that were used on the space shuttle. Now, the Ryan spacecraft on top, that's the part where a person could have been on today, but wasn't. There's no people on board the spacecraft today. And it had uh, a mass of uh, 10.4 tons, and the European service module... Uh, which contains uh, fuel and uh, oxygen and power supplies and things like that, uh, has a mass of 15.4 tonnes. And when it splashes down, the crew module, 
uh, will have a mass of 9.3 tonnes. So it goes from 10.4 tonnes to 9.3 tonnes. And the Orion capsule has a diameter of 5 metres, a length of 3.3 metres. The total vehicle stack, the Space Launch System, has a height of 98 metres, a diameter of 8.4 metres, and can lift into low Earth orbit a 95-ton payload, or it can send towards the Moon a 27-ton payload. And uh, that's where the spacecraft is heading uh, today. So, let's go to Mission Control, and we're going to hear the last few minutes of the countdown. They had a hold uh, due to a number of reasons, including a range issue uh, with the radar. wasn't working. And also they had a fuel uh, hydrogen leak. Not on the uh, rocket itself this time. It was in the ground support structure. Anyway, here we go to when they're going to do the... Are we going to launch or not? The the, the launch pole and uh, the launch director is uh, directing this. Okay, NASA test director Jeff Spaulding getting ready to conduct the readiness pole. So we are getting close. Use go. And rock. Rock is go. All right, copy all. And launch director NTD, our launch team is ready to proceed at this time. I copy all NTD. At this time, I will proceed with my pole. And attention on 232, this is the launch director performing the final pole for launch. Verify no constraints and go for launch. EGS, program chief engineer. EGS program chief engineer verifies that the EGS, SLS, and Arroyum program chief engineers have no constraints and are go for launch. Copy, Greg. Thank you. EGS chief safety officer. The EGS uh, CSO verifies the SLS, Orion, and EGS CSOs uh, have no constraints uh, and are go for launch. Copy, John. Thank you. Range weather. Weather has no constraints and weather is go for launch. Copy LWO and Mission Manager. And Mission Manager, Launch Director. Launch Director, Mission Manager on 232. The Mission Management Team has been pulled. You have a go to proceed with terminal count and launch of Artemis 1. I copy all. Thank you. And Entity, Launch Director. Go ahead, Launch Director. Yes, sir. On behalf of all the men and women across our great nation who have worked to bring this hardware together to make this day possible. And for the Artemis generation, this is for you. At this time, I give you a go to resume count and launch Artemis 1. Copy, Launch Director, and thank you. All right, we do have a couple of steps to configure, and then we will be ready to resume the clock. CVSE, NTD. CVSE here. Initiate recording of Orion cameras at this time. In work. R, NTD. RSR here. Perform the booster ignition SNA arm rotation enable. NDT, RSR, booster ignition SNA arm and rotation enable is complete. And I copy. Thank you. Okay. So there you heard the poll from launch director getting ready to get that new T0 time. The poll that you heard was the NASA test director's poll. And All right. And we have verified no cutouts at this time. And all personnel, we are going to resume the clock. GLS, you can resume the clock on your mark. GLS copies. Countdown clock will resume on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. 
GLS mainline has been initiated. Okay. T-minus 10 minutes and counting. We are T-minus 10 minutes away from liftoff of Artemis 1. As you can see, the clock is now moving. Let's put that up. T-minus 9 minutes and 47 seconds. The L-minus 15 pole complete. Uh, show it 06, 47, 44 is a new liftoff time. Affirm. Okay. 01.47.44, 1.47 a.m. Eastern Time and 44 seconds. We went straight into terminal count. Liftoff now nine minutes away. So terminal count. Control has been given over to the GLS, the ground launch sequencer, a computer and software that is doing all of the commanding and monitoring of the space launch system. We'll hear call-outs from the GLS operator, Alex Pandalos. As well as NASA test director, Jeff Spaulding. GLS is pre-tensioning the umbilicals at this very moment. You can see them as they run down the rocket. That's getting them ready to detach. At liftoff, those arms will swing away will let go of the rocket in a clockwise direction. T-minus eight minutes and counting. The GLS is uh, performing up to 100 commands per second, inclu including configuring ground systems for power transfer to the rocket. GLS is turning on cameras, recording video inside and outside the crew module to collect data for engineers purging the AFSCIRT booster with high-flow nitrogen, clear out any hydrogen gas that may be there. You can see the crew access arm is already retracted. When there is crew during Artemis II, it would happen at T-minus six minutes. But out of abundance of caution, they went ahead and retracted the arm well ahead of liftoff. Want to point your attention to the base of the mobile launcher. If something wasn't done to reduce the power from the pressure caused by the rocket's ignition and thunderous sound, it could damage the rocket. So the ignition overpressure and sound suppression system will flood the mobile launcher with water. You'll see that sequence start at T minus 17 seconds. Now coming up in less than 30 seconds, the ground launch sequencer will start bringing the high energy systems online, starting with core stage pressurization. Fire room one is completely silent as they listen for the next call. GLS is go for core stage tank pressurization. The core stage tank is now pressuring, pressurizing to flight levels. The replenish valve to the liquid hydrogen tank now closing. The liquid oxygen tank will come a little later. Now we're arming your, the Orion Ascent pyros and transfer to internal power. The launch abort system, or LAS jettison motor, is now armed. On this flight, the abort motor is inactive because there is no crew on board. Up next is the flight termination system, or FTS, which gives the Space Force the ability to destruct the rocket if it goes in the wrong direction. Let's listen in for that. GLS is go for FTS arm. The flight termination system is now armed. Coming up at 4 minutes and 40 seconds, a big moment. This is where the RS-25 engines and their bleed go to high flow. It's been a little tricky to dial in. GLS is go for LH-2 high flow bleed check. Good word. We've passed that. 
The cryo team got the LH2 engine bleed pressure loop dialed in. They are now at the right temperature for launch. Countdown continues. T-minus four minutes, 15 seconds. Up next, GLS fires up the KPUs. Those are high-speed turbines which provide pressure to hydraulic pumps that steer the RS-25s. Stands for Core Stage Auxiliary Power Unit Start. GLS is go for Core Stage APU Start. That now leads to the thrust vector control test at T-minus two minutes and 30 seconds. That can proceed now, and we will see the engine's gimbal at the bottom of the core stage. At T-minus three minutes and 10 seconds, you will hear the go for purge sequence four. That's a helium purge of the four core stage engines downstream of the propellant valve, getting the air and moisture out. GLS is go for purge sequence four. And in just a few seconds, GLS will close the core stage locks vent, liquid oxygen. The white vapor cloud caused from the super cold gaseous oxygen condensing the water in the atmosphere will disappear. You see it coming out there now. And there it goes, it's closed. Locks vent closed, pressure rising in the core stage locks tank to flight levels. Coming up in 15 seconds, look for that thrust vector control actuator test. Engines will gimbal, and there they go. The four core stage RS-25 engines gimbling around, testing the ability to steer the rocket into space. They will operate at 109% performance, each RS-25 throwing down a half million pounds of thrust, all four, two million pounds, all together with the boosters, 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust. GLS go for upper stage to internal power. Now the upper stage has gone to internal power. So power is removed from the rocket's upper stage, the ICPS, and it's been switched to battery power. The same milestone is coming up for the core stage at T minus one minute and 30 seconds. GLS go for core stage to internal power. The rocket's core stage, which houses the three flight computers, is now on battery power. So there is no more hold time available because there's no more margin on the batteries. So if we hold, have a hold, we'd have to recycle back to T minus 10 minutes and recharge those batteries. The count continues. A note now, shortly after liftoff. One minute. Shortly after liftoff, Mission Control Houston will take control of the rocket and my colleague, Leah Cheshire will take over commentary. T minus 50 seconds and counting. Coming up at T minus 33 seconds, the GLS will hand off control to the ALS. This is the autonomous launch sequencer on board the rocket. It will take over command and control of the rocket. But the ALS will check, make sure there's no holds coming from the ground up until T minus GLS seconds. is go for ALS. And we are go for ALS. The space launch system is now counting down to liftoff of Orion on its maiden voyage to the moon. Launch team can no longer recycle the count. Sound suppressor water now flowing 15. under the ML. And here we go. Ten. Hydrogen burnoff igniters initiated. Seven, six, five, four stage engine start. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1, we rise together back to the moon and beyond.
four RS-25 engines on the core stage and two solid rocket boosters now propelling the vehicle at 128 miles per hour. Hearing good, con good control on the roll from teams in Mission Control Houston. All good calls so far. Now 30 seconds into the flight of Artemis 1. First milestone will be for the vehicle to pass through max Q in about one minute and nine seconds into launch. This is the greatest period of atmospheric force on the rocket. SLS now traveling 607 miles per hour. You're looking at 8.8 .8 million pounds of maximum thrust quiet here. stage engines are back at maximum thrust. The next major milestone will be for the solid rocket boosters to cut off and jettison about 2 minutes and 11 seconds into the flight, so about 30 seconds from now. Again, quiet here in Mission Control Houston as teams continue monitoring the flight of Artemis 1. We're now 16 miles downrange from the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center, traveling over 2,800 miles per hour. Standing by for solid rocket booster jettison and shortly thereafter. Confirmation that the solid rocket boosters have separated these 177 foot boosters. Now the core stage continues to power the flight of Orion, all four RS-25 engines firing, traveling over 3,400 miles per hour, 46 miles downrange. Two minutes and 36 seconds into the flight. Hearing nominal calls here in Mission Control Houston. We've still got four good engines on the core stage. Next up, we'll be looking for the service module fairing to separate. This is three 15 by 15 foot fairing panels, providing structural support, protecting the service module. Those will separate at about three minutes and 11 seconds into flight, and very shortly thereafter will be followed by the launch abort system separation. Just over three minutes into the flight of Artemis 1, now traveling over 4,060 miles per hour, 83 miles downrange. And that was the commentary of the launch of Artemis 1, the first launch of a space launch system rocket. And we are going to give you a timeline of what's going to happen for the rest of this flight after these messages. This is The Space Show. Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. Where you are listening to The Space Show. And our big topic tonight, it's not the only topic, but the big one is the Artemis mission. Now, we followed the launch there up until uh, just after the solid rocket booster separation. And at 3 minutes 30, that happened about 2 minutes 12 into the flight. And then at 3 minutes 30 seconds, the escape tower was jettisoned. Then at 
four, that five minutes and 24 seconds, the solid rocket boosters splashed down into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, and uh, unlike the space shuttle boosters, these were not going to be recovered. Then at 8.20, 8 minutes 20 seconds, the core stage engine shut down and the core stage separated at uh, 10 seconds later. Then at 18 minutes into the mission, the Orion Solar Array wing was deployed. And then at 51 minutes, the... Second stage engine was burnt for 20 seconds to raise the perigee up out of the atmosphere. And then, one hour and 29 minutes into the flight, which would be about now, uh, by my reckoning, uh, the translunar injection was to occur. So, and that's where they fire the engine and get the craft out of Earth orbit and on the way towards the moon. That's a uh, an 18-minute burn. So for the next 18 minutes, that engine should be firing. And meanwhile, the core stage uh, reached its apogee. And then uh, that's the high point in, the, in its path, about 1,800 kilometers above the Earth, and began its descent. And at 1 hour 46 minutes into the mission, that core stage should splash down into the Pacific Ocean. Meanwhile, that 18-minute burn should be finishing at about 1 hour 57 minutes and the Orion capsule will separate from the uh, second stage of the rocket. The, uh, about a minute later, the upper stage of that rocket will do a separation burn and this will... One, mean it won't collide with Orion, and secondly, it will send it past the moon and into heliocentric orbit, that is, an orbit around the sun. So it will no longer be a risk to colliding with any of the other things. A bit premature on saying when that was going to happen. The upper stage separation burn was at 1 hour 58 minutes, but the actual disposal burn to put that second stage into heliocentric orbit would happen at 3 hours and 21 minutes. Now, that's uh, day one of the mission. Day two to five is the outbound transit. On day six... There's a lunar flyby at 100 kilometers above the moon and then the transition to a distant retrograde orbit on days 6 through to 9. Then from day 10 to 15, it'll be in that distant retrograde orbit. That is a, a, a wide-ranging orbit around the moon. And the insertion burn for that retrograde orbit will happen on uh, day 10, and interestingly, on day 11, it'll go further from the moon, further away from the Earth, than Apollo 13 did. Remember, Apollo 13 was the one that exploded on the way to the moon. They looped around the moon and came right back. Well, that uh, Apollo 13 will be exceeded on day 11, and the apogee, that is the distance from the Earth, will be 478,000 kilometers. The moon itself is about 400,000 kilometers away from the Earth. Then on day 16 to 19, uh, the Orion capsule will exit the distant retrograde orbit and do a de departure burn on day 16 to leave that orbit 
make a lunar flyby on day 20 and head back towards Earth for a landing on day 26. Uh, should be uh, mission duration uh, should be 25 days 11 hours and 36 minutes with a splashdown on December the 11th. Now because of that late liftoff uh, that uh, minutes part of that uh, estimated timeline will be a little bit different. The Europeans have uh, got a big contribution in this uh, project and Joseph Ashbacher is the Director General of the European Space Agency and David Parker is the Director of Human and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency and they discussed uh, to the European Public Affairs people the European contributions to Artemis and what the European Service Module is and how an agreement is being reached on having European astronauts walk on the moon. Here's how that conversation went. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. With this Artemis mission, uh, Europe is going to the moon. And that is quite historic. Historic because Europe is part of this uh, Artemis mission led by NASA. First, of course, we go to the moon, circle around the moon. And uh, before we eventually go back uh, to the moon's surface uh, with Artemis 3. But Artemis uh, also recalls uh, memories of the giant leap uh, for mankind, uh, which was made in 1969, as you all remember very well, which uh, eventually brought uh, 12 astronauts uh, to the moon from the United States uh, through six missions, uh, uh, landing uh, really as part of the very, very famous Apollo program. Many of us, and myself included, have been inspired by this and have been drawn to space or other technology domains uh, thanks to the Apollo moon landings. And it really was an enormous boost uh, for the U.S. economically, technologically, but also for the U.S. as a leading nation globally. And this impact is still felt today, which shows how important space is for the evolution and the positioning of a country. But today, with the launch of the Artemis missions, Europe is part of going back to the moon. And Europe, through NASA, and uh, together with NASA, is a key partner uh, of the Artemis missions and the Lunar Gateway. But this time, uh, we're not just going there and returning a few days later. This time, we go to the moon to stay and build new ecosystems uh, with the new infrastructure. And the European Service Module, the ESM, will be the symbol of a strong ESA-NASA cooperation on exploration. Without the ESM, in fact, uh, NASA cannot bring their astronauts to the moon and safely back. It is the first time, really, that NASA relies on ESA for such a critical component of one of their flagship, flagship missions uh, like, uh, like Artemis. The fact that NASA entrusts ESA to be on the critical path is huge. And I'm really grateful to NASA for entrusting ESA and its member states with this responsibility. The partnership with NASA has been strong for decades, but with Artemis, it really will reach a new level. And ESA will deliver its part, even if it is modest compared to the NASA overall investments. But ESA is very proud to have some of the best industry 
to help us deliver our European contribution. The ESM, as you know, is developed under the leadership of Airbus Defence and Space, but the excellent work which is done on the ESM itself, which, which provides uh, propulsion, water, air, electricity, and comfortable temperatures for the astronauts flying to the moon and safely back. The ESM was built with industrial contributions from 10 ESA member states, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. And our participation to the Artemis program through the ESM, but also Esprit, IHAP, uh, and other activities like uh, the European Logistics Lander, EL3, or Moonlight, is part of a very ambitious exploration program, which I'm putting together uh, with my member states uh, for the ESA ministerial in November. And it is really at the core of our new exploration strategy, Terrenova, which uh, David Parker has defined with its, with his team and with our member states, uh, which uh, is a key element of our ministerial proposal in November. And at this point, Ninia, if you agree, I would like to hand over to David Parker, my director for human and robotic exploration. Thank you, Josef, uh, for the introduction, and thank you also for the opportunity to, to speak to everyone this morning. It's a very exciting moment. Uh, it's actually an enormous privilege to be able to speak to you uh, about Europe's role in space exploration at this moment, and I'm putting context what the first flight of the European Service Module means to everyone involved. Now, I'm unashamedly a child of Apollo. Uh, the impact of the dream the excitement, the inspiration of that first brief age of lunar exploration had on my generation echoes down the past half century. But today we're on the threshold of something new, something exciting. This time we are going to the moon, literally with the European Service Module, but metaphorically with our European values of peaceful scientific discovery and technical creativity. It's why ESA's space exploration program is indeed named Terra Novi, literally the new worlds we are exploring but also representing the opportunities for discovery, benefits that will flow back to everyone back here on Earth as we explore what I call the Earth's eighth continent, the moon. There can be no doubt the young people of, of Europe believe this. Uh, the record-breaking 22,000 applicants to our new call for astronauts proves it. Uh, but these new explorers, they need new ships to sail, and Orion is our new moon ship. Orion's European service module uh, is built upon the success of the uh, autonomous transfer vehicles. Five ATVs flew to the International Space Station between 2008 and 2015. And these were the smartest uh, cargo vehicles used for supporting the ISS. And thanks to being part of the ISS partnership, multiple ESA astronauts got to fly to the International Space Station. But the ESM is a big step forward because this is the first time that we have built a critical part of a human-rated spacecraft. This implies a level of performance, safety, testing, unpre unprecedented for Europe's space industry. And so this test flight, and it is a test flight for Orion, the, the Artemis One mission to the moon and beyond and back again is, is exciting. Uh, it's challenging, it's nerve wracking, let's be honest, of course it is. But it's also a critical step to in preparing for the even more challenging goal of taking human beings to the moon and bringing them safely back to Earth using the second European service module, which is already in uh, Kennedy Space Center as part of the Artemis II mission. 
Now, I haven't always been an administrator. I used to be a propulsion engineer long ago, but I can therefore take it from me that the propulsion system for the European service module is incredibly complicated and sophisticated. Three different propulsion uh, engines, dozens and uh, components and valves and systems and pipework. All the things we need to make the system redundant and safe to carry crew. Now, our involvement in Orion was the result of a far-sighted decision made by ministers 10 years ago in a brilliant win-win deal. Um, not only have we been able to build half of a human-rated space moonship, but NASA accepted our contribution in exchange for continuing to fly our astronauts to the International Space Station. So the missions of Thomas and Samantha and Matthias and all the rest of them are thanks to the ESM program already. But in 2019, as Joseph implied, Minister took another step, not only to develop the transportation to the moon, but also permanent infrastructure around the moon. And this is the gateway. The gateway will be our uh, outpost a thousand times further out in deep space than the ISS and humanity's most distant uh, location for science, technology, and supporting exploration of the surface of the moon. And as a consequence, of our building two out of the three living spaces, the habitations in deep space, the three ESA astronauts will have the opportunity to fly on Orion and live and work aboard the Gateway. Uh, but as we built the ATVs and Columbus for the space station, we're building the ESMs and the Gateway around the moon, our next best step must be transportation to the moon's surface. And this is why, as Joseph has said, Part of uh, his proposal for the upcoming ESA ministerial is the European Large Logistic Lander, EL3. This will take the essential cargo, life support, science, energy for the surface explorers throughout the 2030s. We hope on our side that these so-called Argonaut landers could be ESA's next contribution to European exploration history, but the ministers will decide in November. But my one last point, if I may, beyond all the technology, all the science, I insist that we also explore space to inspire uh, humanity and especially the next generation. And it's the passion and the commitment of everyone here at ESA and in industry that is propelling Europe into this new age of space exploration. So as important as any rocket fuel, it's this passion, and this commitment that uh, has brought us to this critical moment, the imminent launch of Artemis One. In terms of ESA astronauts, as I said, we have three uh, seats uh, secured for ESA astronauts on Orion. We have not made, uh, on, uh, together with NASA, the final decision of which missions uh, those ESA astronauts will fly on. I can say it will definitely not be ESM-2 uh, or Artemis-2. Um, it could be as early as Artemis-3 in support of the uh, crewed landing. It's very likely to be uh, in support of Artemis-4 and 5 where our contributions, the IHAB for the Gateway and the Spree refueling module will be launched. But the discussions continue because we have to see what happens with its first launch uh, and uh, the progress of the tests and so on. So it's, it's open at this stage fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can say a couple of words on this. Uh, of course, uh, as you can imagine, uh, it will be quite a privilege, if not uh, um, quite a competition, to be the first astronaut on, on Artemis and especially on the moon surface. So as David was saying before, uh, the ESA astronaut flights are currently planned for Artemis 4 and Artemis 5, um, uh, in conjunction also with the IHAB and the uh, Esprit uh, installations. Uh, there's one more 
seat uh, um, granted by NASA for this astronaut, but not yet assigned. Uh, and this uh, assignment has yet to be done, has yet to be agreed. Uh, of course, what I would hope and what I'm uh, asking NASA uh, very clearly is that uh, uh, it would, uh, Europe wishes to have uh, a European astronaut's uh, footprint on the moon before the end of this decade. Uh, I have to say that this is not yet granted. Uh, this is part of negotiations uh, which we are having with NASA, but certainly a, a goal which uh, which we are expressing uh, and uh, which we uh, have made also uh, very clear. Uh, a lot depends on discussions in the next uh, yeah, months uh, on, on one side on the success on the uh, Artemis mission itself, but also on these ministerial and our continued commitment to the uh, Artemis mission through the subscription of the uh, ministerial in November this year out of uh, a package of uh, about 3 billion, which uh, I plan to propose to member states uh, for uh, human and robotic exploration. There's about one third a bit, uh, about 1.1 billion, uh, which will be continuation of uh, ESM activities and uh, gateway activities. Uh, and certainly this is crucial also in uh, our discussions with NASA and in obtaining our astronaut slots, as, as just mentioned before. Astronauts uh, being selected for the Artemis missions, uh, at least in, in this uh, decade, um, and the selection will actually need to be made uh, sooner rather than later, because uh, at some point uh, uh, training needs to start and uh, also the announcements will be made. I have not yet confirmed the date when I will make this announcement, but it is clear that uh, the uh, certainly for the uh, Artemis missions, uh, the existing class of uh, seven astronauts is the basis for that. And out of those, uh, as uh, mentioned before, uh, three will be uh, uh, selected, uh, which are already agreed with NASA to be assigned for the Artemis missions. Who they are, uh, I will decide, uh, as I say, uh, soon, uh, but there's no date yet uh, um, uh, agreed or no, no date fixed yet on when these announcements will be made. But yes, you're right, uh, these three will come from the current seven uh, astronauts, which we have in the current class. Uh, as David was mentioning before, we are currently going through the selection of uh, the new generation, the next uh, class of astronauts. Uh, we got uh, more than 20 2000 applications, as you know, and also there uh, I will select um, the next class of astronauts uh, pretty soon. We are in the, almost the final stage of the selection process. Uh, and uh, again, this will will be happening in the next coming weeks. Again, I don't have yet fixed uh, the date for this announcement, but uh, stay tuned. Uh, these announcements will come up very soon. That was Joseph Ashbacher, the Director General of the European Space Agency, and before him you heard from David Parker, the Director of Human and Robotic Exploration at the European Space Agency. And we hope that the European Service Module works as advertised on the current Artemis One mission, which is now on its way to the Moon. Well... We're going to have a look back in history after these messages. 88.3 Southern FM. On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. This is the Space Show. There have been three types of big rocket in history. One was the Saturn V. 111 metres tall. Very successful, no failures. The next was the N1, which had four launches, all of them a failure. That was in the Soviet Union. Again, that was intended to send 
people to the moon. And now, 50 years later, we have the Space Launch System. Successful launch, as far as we can tell at the moment. Happened several hours, well, almost exactly two hours ago. Well now, what about the Saturn V? Last week, there was no space show. The reason being that there was a power failure in the district in which we have our studios. The whole district. No power. So, no power in the studio, no space show. One of the things we were going to commemorate last week was the 55th anniversary to the day of the launch of the first Saturn V. So here we are, 55 years and one week later, we are now going to commemorate the first launch of the first Saturn V. And this was a mission called Apollo 4. I recorded uh, most of what we're going to hear from the Voice of America on shortwave radio. The quality is yes, a bit, well, you, if you've ever listened to shortwave radio, you know what I mean. But anyway, let's hear how it went. First of all, a preview of the mission. At Cape Kennedy, the long countdown is moving smoothly toward the first unmanned test flight Thursday of the Saturn V moon rocket. The rocket, with an Apollo spacecraft mounted atop it, will fly a trajectory to the Pacific to test its Earth atmosphere re-entry capabilities. America's space agency says the countdown on the Saturn V super rocket is proceeding and that a weather report indicates moderating wind conditions at Cape Kennedy will permit this morning's scheduled launching. Strong winds had swept the Florida area during the 49-hour countdown period. The three-stage Saturn V, more than 110 meters high, is the largest object ever assembled for spaceflight. Its great power will send the 140-ton Apollo spacecraft to a top altitude of some 18,000 kilometers. Well, 55 years later, one thing has not changed, and that's the winds. And uh, there was a risk. Well, the mission had to be delayed by Hurricane Ian, and then again by another uh, hurricane that passed through Florida just a few days ago. The next clip is from the NASA feed, and this is the countdown and liftoff for Apollo 4. Houston flight now confirms that they are that they are go for the flight as are all other aspects of the mission. T minus one minute, sixteen seconds and counting. The pressurization continuing within the vehicle at this time. We also have a hydraulic commit that will permit the hydraulics to drive the engines in the first stage. Liquid hydrogen tank in the second stage now pressurizing. T minus sixty seconds and counting. T minus sixty. Our status board still shows we're go at this time. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. We have transferred to in power, internal power. The transfer is satisfactory. The 6.2 million pound Saturn V launch vehicle now on its own power at 38 seconds and counting. To repeat, the ignition sequence will start at 8.9 seconds. We'll be looking to lift off at zero. T-minus 30 seconds and counting. 
We'll count down from starting at T-minus 20. T-minus 25. Stage is reporting ready for launch. T-minus 20. 19. 18. 17. 16. 15. 14. 13. 12. 11. 10. 9. Ignition sequence starts. 5. 4. We have ignition. All engines are running. We have liftoff. We have liftoff at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The tower has been cleared. The tower has been cleared. And there began the deep rumble of a Saturn V climb out. Well, let's listen now to the climb out as described by the Voice of America. with the Apollo program. Bill, how did that launch look to you? Well, it looked very good. Uh, I was extremely excited over it myself, as was everyone else uh, connected with the launch, and uh, we're all very happy with the way it's gone so far. It looked it up right on the button at 1200. Right on time, right on time, Bill. Well, Bill, uh, what are some of the purposes and some of the firsts in uh, this flight? Well, there are many firsts associated with this flight. Uh, of course, it was the first of the Saturn V series uh, of vehicles. It was the first launch from Launch Complex 39 at the Kennedy Space Center, which has been recently activated. It was the first flight of the first stage, that 7.5 million pound thrust first stage, the largest one known to be in existence in the world. The first flight of the S2 stage, or the second stage of the Saturn V. And the uh, first orbital restart of the S4B stage, that's the third stage, will take place uh, some five hours or three hours into the flight. Uh, in addition to that, uh, skipping over some of the more minor firsts, uh, there is a, a new model heat shield that will be tested out at lunar re-entry speeds uh, of approximately 40,000 kilometers per hour when it comes back in at the end of the flight. So how does this relate to our future uh, magic flights uh, in the Apollo series, particularly uh, our future flights to the moon? Well, this is one of the big steps on the uh, Man and Man on the Moon uh, program. Uh, this step uh, with the Saturn V vehicle will prepare us then for uh, future launches of this vehicle to test it out prior to putting men on board. We'll have, uh, uh, we plan on having six launches next year, three of them on the Saturn uh, 1B, the uprated Saturn 1, and three more on the Saturn V. One of those on the Saturn V will be a manned launch. In 1969, then we planned five more Saturn V launches, all of the manned. Well, Bill, uh, one of the unusual features uh, comes, as you say, about five hours or so into the flight when 
Uh, there's a reignition, a relighting of the third stage, and you shoot that Apollo spacecraft into a very high orbit of over ele- about 11,000 miles. Uh, what is the purpose in this? Well, the purpose is uh, when it comes over to the United States for the second time, uh, it will be the third stage will be ignited for the second time. Put it into the high apogee ellipse, which will uh, then come back down into the Earth's atmosphere. The uh, purpose of that is to get it up to a high speed that will be equal to that speed we'll get when we come back from a lunar mission. That's about, what, 40,000 kilometers? That's about 40,000 uh, kilometers per hour. And this will after a new heat shield, would it be? Not on the Apollo spacecraft? That's right. This will be the greatest heat load that we've ever subjected a, a manned spacecraft heat shield to. Well, Bill Land, thank you very much. Uh, we've been bringing you some of our direct coverage of the Apollo Saturn V spacecraft. Now some 20 minutes and 25 seconds into flight. It is o- now over the Indian Ocean. And this is William McCrory. So there we have it. 55 years and one week ago, the first launch of the Saturn V rocket. And <laughs> 55 years and one week later we have the first launch of the space launch system rocket which is hopefully going to take people to the moon in a few years time well now let's uh let's just hear a little bit of the problems that celine dion has Well, Celine Dion, what does she have to do? Get water from the moon? Well, when she sang that in 1992, the moon was thought to be bone dry. But since then, we've found out a few things about the moon, and it turns out there could well be water there, not liquid water, but uh, water ice there. And the hunt is on to find it. Now, sometime uh, this month, probably should have been uh, by today, but I think it's been delayed, a Falcon 9 rocket will launch from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station bound for the moon. Aboard will be three spacecraft. One of them will be the first commercial lunar lander for the Japanese company iSpace. iSpace Compact competed for the Google Lunar X Prize and is now developing a series of robotic lunar landers. The first lunar lander is called iSpace Mission 1. It carries a package of international and commercial payloads, including two small lunar rovers from the United Arab Emirates and Japan. The Japanese lander is called Hakuto-R and the Emirati rover is called Rashid-1. The mission will also launch a NASA spacecraft called Lunar Flashlight on a three-month-long trajectory that will eventually place it into a near-rectilinear halo orbit around the moon. This orbit will take lunar flashlight as far as 70,000 kilometres from the moon down to 15 kilometres above the lunar south pole. 
As the briefcase-sized satellite sweeps low over the South Pole, it will shine lasers into the permanently shadowed craters. The four-laser rectoflectometer will look for water ice on the moon. The reflectometer works by using near-infrared wavelengths that are readily absorbed by water to identify ice on the surface. Should the laser beams hit bare rock, their light will reflect back to the spacecraft, signaling a lack of ice. But if the ice is absorbed, it would mean the dark craters do indeed contain ice. I meant that if the laser is absorbed. And the greater the absorption, the more ice there may be down there on the moon. And uh, we've got this feature here about the Lunar Flashlight Mission. I'm going to talk about the Lunar Flashlight Mission. So this is a low-cost, high-risk, high-reward mission that was originally selected by uh, the Advanced Exploration Systems Program within NASA's uh, Human Exploration uh, Directorate. So the objective of the mission is to identify water ice at the surface surfaces within permanently shadowed craters. So this is sort of preaching to the choir, but the thing I wanted to, um, where we sat down and, and talked about lunar volatiles um, for a couple of weeks and what measurements needed to be made to really advance the field. And this is back in, in 2014, but I think this stands up to now. And the, the upshot of it is that basically, even though the science and exploration communities want different things out of the measurements, the measurements that we need are, for the most part, the same. Very few measurements that only the science community cares about, and likewise, few measurements that only the exploration community cares about. And so these measurements that Lunar Flashlight will make um, are important both for the science and for exploration and, and ISRU. The motivation for wanting to, to make yet more measurements is that our existing data sets are often confusing or even in conflict. And so this is just one example of an, a, a region in the, the moon's south polar region with three craters, uh, Hayworth, Shoemaker, and Faustini, that uh, show differing amounts of, of hydration or, or water in three different data sets. And, and you can argue that they're each probing different depths or different types of water, but the fact is, when you really dig into it, these these don't really match up with our models or expectations. And so we need to address this problem. Um, and I think the, the main reason for this is is mostly a signal-to-noise issue. And so we, we just need uh, better and, and more measurements of, um, in this case, the water-frost distribution that uh, Lunar Flashlight will, will measure. So, so um, the Lunar Flashlight mission um, has a uh, very short duration. Again, it's a, a very uh, high-risk, high-reward kind of operation. So it's a 6U CubeSat that will be launched on the uh, EM-1 launch of SLS. It's the first, first flight of SLS. So we use the measurement approach. And again, the objective is to detect water ice on the surface of the PSRs, lasers in four different bands to differentially, uh, to measure the differential reflectance at those different wavelengths. So it's a long period orbit, a near rectilinear halo orbit with a very long period that gives us uh, about 10 science passes during the two-month primary mission. 
Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully, hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday. <laughs>